This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. From the Chronicle podcast system, this is the NPC podcast of the National Pharmaceutical Congress for November 9, 2022. The NPC podcast is where we discuss and consider the purpose, process and people of the pharma industry, and today, we'll continue the healthcare conversation. This program is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Imprez is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Imprez tailored best-in-class solutions at www.imprez.com. Our guest today is patient commando Zal Press. Zal will join your hosts, Jim, Mark, and Mitch. And to start today's conversation, here's Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome back to the NPC podcast from the National Pharmaceutical Congress. I'm your co-host, Mitch Shannon. Happy to be coming to you uh, once again from our historic podcast, Gondola, following in the footsteps of all the great life sciences podcasters of bygone days. And we're thinking in particular of Foster Lifesci, who was legendary for his famous greeting of good evening and eureka. So we're joined again by our podcast pals, James Shea, General Manager of the Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education in Montreal. Hi there, Jim. Good day. A hearty good day to all of you. And bringing up Foster, uh, you know, I remember that famous line he had, he shoots another inoculation against pertussis. But, you know, as that fame grew and he got through to more people, the whooping of the crowd just died down and he just never really got any good feedback after that. So, yeah. Whooping cough. Whooping cough. It's hard to believe this is all improvised. And Mark McElwain, the pharmaceutical industry consultant and healthcare expert is with us. Mark and Jim, but first, Mark, have you guys ever heard of someone named Manitoulin Bob? He sounds like somebody you might have come across. Manitoulin Bob. Sounds like one of those handles that people use on social media in, in some sort of an attempt to make their comments anonymous, bad or good. Could be. Jim, have you? You know, I've been called Mandolin Jim just so that I'm not playing second fiddle in my house anymore, but that's, that's as close as I get. Well, reason I'm asking is we've been getting some pretty uh, nice reviews from our listeners over on uh, Apple iTunes fellow named uh, Manitoulin Bob says this about us. Relaxed chats with leaders in Canadian pharma, a new format with a team of interviewers to make it a bit more relatable, surprisingly high production values. So uh, let me ask the question, are either of you Manitoulin Bob? No, I'm not. Well, just because my cottage is nearby, I guess I'm busted. I'm going to have to change that handle. I guess it's a good thing, at least, that I said something nice about the wizard in the control room back there. You're making us guess whether you're kidding or not. But anyway, whoever Bob is, thank you. And thanks also to everyone who follows us on iTunes and everywhere else. And a a tip of the toque to our producer, Jeremy, the man with those surprisingly high production values, which go along with his surprisingly high speaking voice. So we are your podcast hosts, known simply as Jim, Mark, and Mitch because all the creative brand names were already taken, such as Marineland and Game Farm, or the worst Canadian band name ever, Chalawak. Guys, it's time to meet the press. Zell Press, come on in here. Hey, hi, everyone. Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Great to see you again. So you are currently the vice chair of the Patient and Community Advisory Committee at the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies in Health, CADTH. CADTH. How do you pronounce that? CADTH. Try CADTH. I will try it. CADTH. So tell us a little bit more about CADTH and your role in it. Sure. The Patient and Community Advisory Committee at CADTH was created about three years ago. And really, it was in response to CADTH's understanding that it They weren't really hearing all of the voices that they felt they needed to hear when they were doing an assessment. So they deliberately went out to recruit for this committee, thinking about representation and what that kind of meant and realizing that you just can't get full representation, you know, of this country, a diverse country, you know, given all of the different kind of people that we have here in the indigenous groups, the different regions and geographic distribution. So They had a very intentional intersectional approach. So they brought together 12 people, including myself, who have a variety of different experiences in the world. So you had to kind of examine why they did this. And they realized as well that their own engagement practices with patients really weren't working, wasn't connecting them to marginalized populations. And typical patient groups that they were engaging with also couldn't deliver on this diversity issue. So everything that they wanted to look at really had this huge gap in terms of patient representation, patient involvement. And whether that be whether the original research question was really even what mattered to patients, whether clinical trials actually had the right cohorts of patients, you know, and that drugs that were meant for, let's say, female patients, you know, weren't just exclusively being tested on males. You know, so they were really looking to include people from the edges, you know, including BIPOC, LGBTQT people, rural and remote populations, and people like youth-based populations and the disabled as well that weren't typically involved. Let's face it, HTA staff are making the kinds of decisions that can affect the health outcomes of millions of people. So the question is, are they hearing all the voices? Are they hearing the right voices? you know, in order to to make the right decisions. All you have to do is kind of look at what's happening in the world of the delivery of care, say, look at hospitals, and you'll see that patients are being embedded on committees throughout hospitals, even on hiring committees. Yep. You know, I mean, think about it. Patients are interrogating CEO candidates, which is, you know, kind of an interesting scenario, you know, which could make for a great reality show. So if you think about that, what's happening in the delivery of care is that there's an understanding and appreciation that the human experience is probably the most dynamic input to decision-making. And it's not just a method, but it's also a culture. And I can see CADETH, given the principles that it's committed to in its new strategic plan, making an authentic effort to change its culture. Now, that's not going to happen overnight, but challenging bias and creating a new mindset is really hard work. So it's good to see that senior management is really committed to it. Al, it's Mark. That's great because patient voices are clearly uh, pretty important for Kenneth to hear. You're also founder and executive director of an organization called Patient Commando. So could you tell us more about this initiative? Sure. Don't you like the name Patient Commando? First of all, I mean, Absolutely. Isn't that great? You know, uh, you know, when I thought of that, I was thinking about, you know, what is it that you'd really want, you know, in a patient? 
And you think about what all the attributes and qualities of a commando really are. And it's not just, you know, Schwarzenegger, right, doing his commando in, in the movie, right? And so that's, I'll be back kind of thing. But it's really, you know, you think about commando principles are teamwork, loyalty, attention to detail, agility, resilience. I mean, these are all things that you'd really want, I think, in a patient. I think you'd want all of those things in a healthcare professional as well. But patients aren't typically part of that concept, right? They're more, if, if anything, they're more the prey than the commando. And so when I started out with this, I wanted to really talk about a new narrative around what patients were all about. And so storytelling was kind of fundamental and elevating storytelling, you know, among healthcare professionals was really kind of where we targeted our work and enabling patients to tell their stories, to be able to share their stories, creating safe spaces for patients to tell their stories was kind of the mandate. And I produced everything from live stage productions to continuing medical education programs that were accredited by the College of Family Physicians. So we were having patients tell stories to teach physicians how to listen to stories. And that's really what Patient Commando has been doing for over the last decade. That's cool. It sounds more like patient assertiveness rather than just advocacy. That's a good word for it as well, because advocacy is probably a misnomer when you talk about what's actually happening with patients. So, so where does your passion for letting the patient speak come from? The social purpose runs in my blood. For over 25 years, I operated a manufacturing business. We made mass market wall decor, you know, those pretty little pictures that you see in Walmart or Home Sense or that you see it, you know, in the gift stores at, at art galleries and the rest. And when I started it, I took advantage of these uh, government programs to subsidize the wages of people, you know, re-entering the workforce. And I specifically exploited a program to bring ex-offenders back into the workforce. And it was a pretty eclectic group, you know, of people that I hired at that time. They ranged from dope dealers to chemical abusers to those convicted of assault and even a couple of bank robbers. Their stories weren't movie worthy, but they were still, you know, interesting people nonetheless. Frankly, not all of them worked out. Some of them didn't last till the first lunch break. But, you know, I did have one who went on to be the president of a public company. And another one worked for me for over 12 years until he collapsed and died on the factory floor. Uh, some people accuse me of working him to death, but I mean, he was happiest when he was working. Over the years, I expanded uh, my hiring policy to include new immigrants, at-risk youth, and even single moms who needed to reestablish employment records. And when I was transitioning out of my business over a decade ago, it was kind of a no-brainer to move into another space where vulnerable populations were marginalized and their voices were silenced. So I come by this kind of naturally, I think. I just got to say, that's a great answer. And let no one say that the answers to our questions are predictable. Over to you, Jim. As predictable as the askers. So it's Jim here. You know, I don't want to get into delving into deeply personal stuff, but, you know, passion comes from somewhere. Can you tell us more about your experience as a long time patient with a chronic condition? 
Yeah, sure. And that's really, you know, my experience is what's so important and fundamental to this whole healthcare matter, right? It's the personal experience, it's the human experience, it's the patient experience. And for me, it all started over 42 years ago, you know, when I um, clearly overworked and, and overtired young gastroenterologist came up to me and said, Mr. Press, uh, you have a chronic illness, you have Crohn's disease. And I'll tell you, I couldn't spell Crohn's disease at that time. I was 29 years old. I didn't know what it meant. And just, you know, three months into my marriage, and we didn't know what the repercussions for that were, you know, either in terms of what's the future. So I offered my wife a way out. I said, three months into this marriage, if you want to, you know, scoot, I can understand it. Well, she's pretty stubborn and she's hung around all this time. So for me, one of the, you know, the most important things that we all have to realize about this experience is not really how much it affects us as patients individually, but you know, how it affects everyone around us, you know, the loved ones, the relationships that we have, the connections that we make to people. And, you know, the, you can sort of see like how important this is. Here's a good example, for instance. I know you didn't want something really personal, but I'm going to give you something really personal. About 15 years ago, my wife began feeling insecure in our marriage. Now, I'm not going to dive into why she may not have felt secure, you know, why she might have had been a little insecure, but she was feeling that way because I had started on a biologic for my Crohn's disease. And my $36,000 annual drug tab was picked up by her teacher's benefits package. So she figured I couldn't afford her, leave her, even if I wanted to. Not that I'd want to, mind you, but it got me thinking, right? Got me thinking about how important this relationship was in my life. So being a proactive kind of guy, you know, I sat down. I drafted an ad for eHarmony. You know eHarmony, the online dating service for old people? Now, you know, I was 59 at the time. And so listen to the ad I, that, I, that I wrote, and you tell me what you think about it. And it starts out like this. 59-year-old male with a lifelong case of incurable chronic illness. That's a pretty killer start, isn't it? You know, Looking for a hot 30-something female teacher with a pretty good benefits package, right? So, you know, I was expecting the phone to just ring off the hook with that kind of thing. So I was prepared. A lot of swiping going on left or right or whatever. I don't know where the swipe's going. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what I could tell you. you know, that's really a great example of kind of like how vital our relationships are, how everything is sort of you know, interconnected and, you know, the patient experience, whether it be with our family or with our healthcare professionals, even our healthcare professionals, you know, I mean, you think healthcare, you know, like, you know, the patient experience and delivering care is all about pain and suffering. And, and yeah, it is, you know, I mean, but imagine, you know, being a healthcare professional and getting closer to people who are in pain, who are in suffering, who are grieving and realizing at the end of the day, that there's joy in that suffering. And that joy comes from their human equipment being used to the benefit of other human beings. And that, that's really core and central, you know, to this whole human experience in healthcare. Yes, absolutely. I know many people who, certainly with chronic illness and even, you know, acute problems who are concerned more about the people around them than their own health. So, uh, yeah, that's it is I think a lot of us tend to forget that 
when we're looking at helping a patient, it's also about uh, dealing and helping the people, the support networks, the family and others around that patient, which often we're totally blind to. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's, you know, very important. Yeah. Traditionally, you know, their views, their concerns aren't even part of the mix, say, in a HDA assessment, right? That's right. The quality is this, therefore we're not going to do something. But you know, they forget about the impact of all the other people and, and what qualities are being impacted around the patient who's sick. So yeah, it's, uh, it is what it is. And hopefully we'll, we'll be able to move people ahead and change the perception of what uh, we're trying to deal with on a daily basis in this. Now, here's a tough question, you know, and this is something you'd probably talk for hours and hours on, but, you know, how can patients really speak up and advocate, go commando, for themselves. And I don't mean how I go commando every time I'm in a hospital with my blue garment on. Yeah, that's a great fashion statement, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I like to think that patient advocacy is kind of, like I said earlier, a bit of a misplaced term. But to me, the more important consideration really is how can people be enabled to be advocates and and how do we and, and and by that I mean not the royal we but I mean all healthcare stakeholders how do we build their capacity to be engaged and there's two ways of engagement that we're talking about here really is are they engaged in their own healthcare and are they engaged in say you know healthcare policy decision making and those are two you know completely diverse elements but they need to be enabled in both arenas. About a year ago, the UK healthcare policy agency, NICE, it's such an interesting acronym, right? N-I-C-E, it's called NICE, when so many of its decisions are just not nice to patients. So it's a bit of a, a you know weird thing to think about. Nevertheless, about a year ago, they released a, a set of guidelines around the term shared decision-making. And it was specifically for organizations. So how did healthcare organizations actually do shared decision-making in the right way? Right at the, almost at the top, the second recommendation was to appoint a patient director. And they specified that that person should be a person with lived experience. And I think this is really key. So now they're speaking to the issue of patient leadership. And what does that mean? And how do you do that? And it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, for, you know, you, you, you see, likely we've seen, uh, you know, certain industry members having a position called a chief patient officer. And of course, they appoint a doctor to that position. So that's not exactly, you know, kind of in alignment with what this guideline might be. So if we were to think about how we establish a new kind of patient leadership embedded in healthcare, I think we've got a much better opportunity to enable people to begin thinking themselves as being owners of their healthcare, not necessarily advocates, but owners, and thereby, by taking ownership of their healthcare, not only do we have the potential for better health outcomes on an individual basis, but we have much better opportunity for successful outcomes on a population health basis. And there's lots of methods for organizations and professional stakeholders to engage differently with patients and, and vice versa for patients to engage, you know, with organizations. So 
exploring that depth of what shared decision-making is all about, I think will get us to a much better space around ownership of your own healthcare, really. You're listening to Zal Press on the NPC podcast. So Zal, how does going commando work in our new routine of virtual engagement? What kind of adjustments to the new tech age have you made? Well, one is, you know, just making sure that you have your pants on, you know, when you're doing these kinds of virtual meetings. You never know when, uh, you know, when something might get knocked off the desk, a camera might move, you know, you might sneeze and things just. But I, I think there's been a, you know, this whole new new thing has been um, really a positive thing for patients. There's been a lot more conversations that have been enabled. Uh, there are a lot more opportunities for people to be involved. It's a lot easier, say, for a person, you know, who's got a disability, you know, who has to organize wheeltrans to get to a meeting and then, you know, have to wait for professionals to be there. And then, uh, you know, all of the logistics around uh, that kind of in-person meeting and I think really enable people to have broader participation in many different kinds of conversations, especially global ones. It's Jim here. You mentioned being diagnosed at 29 years old with Crohn's disease. Obviously a shock, you know, you're telling your wife you want to stick around or not. She has, lucky for you, I guess, like all of us here, you know, with our wives. But how did that really impact your career plan and quite frankly, your whole history since then? You got a decade to talk about it. You know, it's interesting when people become patients, they have to communicate with healthcare professionals who graduated after four to six years, and they've got this new vocabulary of 35,000 words, right? You know, there's a really corny old joke that I like to share with people when I talk about this sort of thing. And it's a corny old joke I hear time and time again over 40 years, you know, in physicians' waiting rooms. And that is, you know, physicians do take years to years to graduate, and then they come out with this, you know, great vocabulary, and then they practice medicine. So the question is, when are they going to stop practicing and actually do real medicine? And the point is that, you know, practice is important, of course, because they got to practice the vocabulary, and it's, and it's all part of the whole concept around practice. But patients, on the other hand, get no time to practice. Once they receive a diagnosis, they're thrown into the game right away. So they have to respond to that with the same multiple skills that they have, the knowledge that they have, the wisdom that they come with, the spirituality and the different cultures. So they have to respond to that based on their complete basis of knowledge and understanding. I like to think that I have a PhD in lived experience. That's what I've got. That's what I come to the table with. That's a body of knowledge that's derived from over 40 years of interacting with the healthcare system. I'm talking about thousands of interactions, multiple surgeries, dozens of dashes to the emergency department, hundreds, if not thousands of vials of blood. You know, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with hundreds of clinicians, <laughs> residents, nurses students, lab technicians. And of course, let's not forget the elephant in the room. I've had to navigate the payment of well over $1.4 million in medications, you know, over the last 40 years. So that's not the totality of my experience, but it gives you an understanding of the breadth of my experience and, and how it really demands some kind of agility 
you know, agility that I had being a small business person for 25 years, you know, responding to market trends and changes and shifts. I said shifts, not the other word. You know, so that's kind of how I look at what that totality is all about. You were doing a full-time job just to be able to have a full-time job. Very interesting. And that's what, again, what people don't realize how busy it can be in the background just to uh, being a, an active patient at any given time. Sal, it's Mark again. You spoke at this year's National Pharmaceutical Congress and your talk called A Patient Perspective, it sparked a lot of interest. Can you tell us about the thought, the planning behind it and what you were uh, getting across? Sure, sure. You know, it's it's closely related to the work that I'm doing with my committee at CADF, the Patient and Community Advisory Committee. You know, last spring, there's an organization called HTA International, which is a, an association of HTA bodies globally. And they had their annual meeting, an annual conference, and its theme was the life cycle approach uh, in HTA. Now, in case anybody missed it, back in uh, 2020, there was a new definition for HTA that was adopted. And that was a critical shift in the way HTA is going to be implemented and how globally everybody, all the stakeholders need to rethink how to engage with HDA. Because if you think about it, the definition that was adopted is, you know, basically to determine the value of a health technology at different points in its life cycle. So it's no longer just about a single assessment, which is how typically people think about it. And the dimensions of value that you know often include clinical effectiveness and safety and costs and economic implications now also include ethical issues social cultural legal issues organizational and even environmental aspects so it's a much broader context in terms of what does hta mean and the implications for patients relatives caregivers you know are massive so given that, you know, HTA can be applied at different points in the life cycle, whether it be pre-market, post-market, you know, through to retirement or disinvestment, you should take note of things like CADF's new post-market drug evaluation group. And this all comes back to some of my earlier talk about the new emphasis on the human experience and how that is opening up opportunities for greater involvement of patients and public across the continuum of a drug life cycle. Again, from basic research through clinical trials, regulatory approval, reimbursement, and post-market. So the biggest challenge to industry is to understand how to respond to this broadening of the HDA definition and reassessing its own relationships with patients. And if you look at the principles that CADF has committed to in its new strategic plan, and you can all go to the CADF website and Get download a copy of that. There's a clear intention there to apply a lens of equity and inclusiveness, and that's to deliberately to foster a health system that reflects the diverse people of this country. And it also commits Cadeth to respond to the priorities and the cultural practices of the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. So this is a huge way a huge shift in the way that HCA people are going to be thinking, acting, and working. 
And it is going to demand an equal response from industry, from government, other government, from patients, you know, in terms of adapting to this new paradigm. It's not a simple task, but it's a really important and vital task. And that's why, you know, in this the presentation last week at the National Pharmaceutical Congress in terms of diversity and equity, I mean, these are important principles and we need to really begin to cultivate that culture of equity, that culture of inclusivity. Understanding that is important. The commitments that people are making to it are even more important. And HTA is going to be looking to other stakeholders to see what kinds of commitments they've made to these same principles. There seems to be a real opening there. I know that health technology organizations tend to be not too popular at conferences like that, but you know, maybe in future, it isn't just going to be the pharma economists saying no over at Cadiz. You know, there are going to be more actors in it, and that's great. Yeah, I think, you know, in thinking about it, and you think about patient commando, and you think, well, that's a pretty combative term. And, you know, and oftentimes the relationship between stakeholders and regulators and HTA, you know, is kind of a combative relationship. I think you're going to need to change to another C word, not a four letter C word, but a longer word called collaboration. And to understand the new relationship from a collaborative perspective rather than a combative one. So it's uh, Jim here again. So uh, we're winding the knob from 11 on our masterfully produced show here down to zero slowly. So we're going to invite you to play a word association game and just go ahead and say the first things that come to mind in response to each of the following phrases or words. So I'll start now. I'll put on the timer and uh, here we go. Social impact. If you're not at the table, you're likely the dinner. Patient advocacy. Patient partnership. Community building. And I don't mean the Y down the street. That's the red brick house. A, B, C, D. Asset-based community development. That's basically building on the strengths of a community rather than trying to fix the weaknesses. Cycling. Burn, baby, burn. (laughs) You know, up in the gondola, I've just been trying to get an understanding more about that. The forward reversal of the puck in the offensive zone, and nobody's been able to really answer. But maybe it is burn, baby, burn. So with that, uh, yeah, we, we've been evaluating all those questions and answers. And I'd say another, a Google, a Google Plex of points here. I would suggest that. So we're going to award a Google Plex, yeah. That's pretty good. Okay, so finally, it's time, uh, Zal, to put on your soothsayer's hat and enter our prognostication quarter. So uh, what bold predictions would you like to make about the life sciences industry during the coming let's say 12 or 24 months? You know, I'm an unrepentant patient voice, so I'll, I'll give you my, my patient lens exclusively. And there's going to be big changes in the way that patients are involved in healthcare decision-making. Now, we could look at two examples like uh, Sweden's Patient Bill of Rights that was passed by the Swedish Parliament, or we could look at a new form of patient organization like the one in France that was established and funded by an act of parliament. And it's included in the Public Health Act to ensure that patient representation is guaranteed in decision-making and includes people with disabilities, the elderly, vulnerable populations. It even has a patient safety mandate and a role to defend uh, you know, medical accident 
victims. So that model puts patients inside of government, not on the outside like they are now. That's my prediction. Yeah, that's a great prediction. So Zell, this was really interesting. We had some fun. Thanks for hanging out with us and come on back again. We'll chat some more. Okay. Anybody up for a bike ride along the lake? Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I'll go down to Lac St. Louis. Jim's got his own lake and Mark is somewhere known as Lee Side, so I don't know how that would work for him, but Or near Manitoulin Island, I guess. No, I'd love to meet Manitoulin Bob, actually. I suspect he's someone uh, in our midst, but I, I don't know. The Hunt for Manitoulin Bob could be a spinoff podcast. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll speak to you again next week. If you'd like to press any further questions on Zal, or if you have comments for us about today's conversation, send an email to health at chronicle.org. Feel free to attach your question as a voice clip and you might possibly hear yourself in an upcoming episode. If you enjoyed today's NPC podcast, please like it, rate it, recommend it, and do make a point of sharing it with your colleagues. Find us at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you choose to get your podcasts. The NPC podcast is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. Check them out at www.imprez.com. This is your announcer, Leona Void, speaking. This podcast was produced by Jeremy Visser. Research for this program came from Christella Tello-Ruiz. The musical theme is performed with single-minded focus by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the skilled direction of maestro Ludema Milbrook. We'll speak again next week.